0: Oh, I'm familiar with English martial arts, Gavin. It's mostly throwing scalding hot tea in someone's face. Yes. The following podcast contains... Oh, ah! What the you <laughs> f- do that for? Hey! That was... Don't squeal. What,
1: what are we? We will not swear were- we-
0: Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. Wouldn't you, uh, just, uh, drop dropkick that chick on the dance floor, uh, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 438, What If Everyone Was Kung Fu Fighting? Well, we talk about that time in the 1970s when everyone was doing martial arts moves on the disco floor. Stay tuned. The what the Hell Were You Thinking podcast is brought to you by Big Patty School of Boston Martial Arts. We want you to know we can fucking wipe the walls with you. Here big Paddy's We're out of those schools to teach you about the Xana martial arts. You know, none of that bullshit. We'll teach you how to fucking fight like a drunken Boston man. You're the the bull rush, the haymaker, the headbutt, and the kick of the fucker in the ribs when he's on the ground. Name we'll no fucking lotus positions. No and sense. just point shots and short-tempered drunks beating the shit out of each other the Boston way. Sign up now at Shayna Sondrani's Pub. Every night around 10 o'clock when Big Paddy gets good and fired up. Big Patty School of Boston Martial Arts. What the fuck are you looking at?
1: Uh, sir. Sir. Ooh, ooh, sir. Who disturbs our meditation as a pebble disturbs the stillness of the pond? Me. Ed Gruberman? Ed, Ed. Gruberman. Yeah, uh, no disrespect or nothing, but, like, uh, how long is this going to take? Taekwon Leap is not a path to a door, but a road leading forever towards the horizon. So, like, what, an hour or so? <laughs> no, no, we have not even begun upon the path. Ed Gruberman, you must learn patience. Yeah, 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 patience. How long will that take? Time has no meaning. To a true student, a year is as a day. A year? I want to beat people up right now. I got the pajamas. Ha, Woo! Ya! Yeah. Mm. Beat people up. Yeah, just show me all those nifty moves so I can start trashing bozos. That's all I came here for. that? <laughs> The only use of Taekwon Leap is self-defense. Do you know who said that? Ki Lo Ni, the great teacher. Yeah? Well, the best defense is a good offense. You know who said that? Mel, the cook on Alice.
0: Growing up, I was never one of those kids into the Oriental stuff. Also, dude, Chinaman is not the preferred nomenclature. Asian American, please. You see, among the nerd set, there were two houses. There were the Westerners, who were into high fantasy, swords and Arthurian legends, and straight swords. And then there were the Orientalists, who were into ninjas, dragons without wings, and curved swords. Bunch of goddamn nerds. There was no particular animus between our two houses, though some spirited debates did erupt around whether or not a katana could pierce a suit of full-plate armor. That's the saddest thing I ever heard. But mostly, we enjoyed peaceful coexistence. There was always that one weird kid was way too into it and they were always on the oriental side how is that not racist to you now, see, no no it's not racist we used oriental because we were referring to the historical culture the people were asian but the ninjas and kung fu that was oriental that is not how it works i was 12 what the fuck did i know as i was saying there was always that one kid who took things a a little too far, he could be seen practicing with his nunchucks, by which I would mean he, uh, he would stand in his backyard narrowly avoiding whacking himself in his nuts with his pair of nunchucks. And he also always carried a throwing star in his math book for protection. How's that even legal? This was the 80s, long before kids took up mass murder in school as a hobby. Though, if guns were as prevalent back then as they are now, I'm fairly certain the Venn diagram of throwing star nunchuck kids and school shooters would be pretty broad. These dudes also had a fairly substantial collection of manga and ja- and anime and in the 80s. That meant they got it directly from Japan because their parents had been stationed there. I had a friend named Jim, tall lanky kid who nunchucked and had some manga that even 40 years later, I find frankly disturbing. Tentacles. Yeah. Jim was always bragging about his martial arts skills, but as near as I could tell, Jim didn't seem to actually know any martial arts. Most of it seemed to be moves I had seen on Saturday afternoon movies and old episodes of Hong Kong Fooey.
1: Who is this superhero? Sarge? No. Rosemary, the telephone operator? Henry, the mild mannered janitor? Could be. Hong Kong Booey, number one super guy. Hong Kong Booey, quicker than the human eye. He's got style, a groovy style, and a bar that just won't stop. When the going gets rough, he's super tough. with the Hong Kong Booey chop. Yeah! Hong Kong Booey, number one super guy
0: in which Scatman Crothers, a notable African-American gentleman, played a dog that practiced martial arts. Back to Jim. Jim would spend his afternoons in his backyard hurling and throwing stars at a tree and his evenings leafing through his manga magazines and waxing prosaic over Japanese culture, Chinese martial arts, and how he was going to train to be a ninja. And that was the difference between us Western nerds and the Oriental nerds. Us Occidentalists all knew that we were never going to be knights into shining armors, but a lot of the Orientalists believed that they could, if they trained hard enough, become a ninja. Ninja. You're a ninja. Sadly for them, this was never, ever going to happen. This brings me to this week's topic, that time in America when everyone was Kung Fu fighting. Kung Fu fighting. Diddle, 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 Now, this is one of those topics where the backstory could easily spin out of control. And then I find myself enmeshed in a three-parter that no one asked for. And frankly, I don't want to do. So I'm going to hit you up with the... uh, Okay, here we go. The short, short version. To bring you to the moment that I really want to talk about. All right, here we go. Every culture has some sort of form of martial arts. The short version. Trust me, this is the short version. And while martial arts are traditionally associated with Asian cultures, a codified, ritualized form of combat, which is as good a thumbnail for martial arts as any, exists pretty much everywhere people needed to kill other people, meaning that it existed everywhere. And while the oldest versions we know of originate in Asia, primarily China, Evidence exists for them in African tribal societies that lives on today in the war dances that precede combat between tribes, the Pacific Islanders, particularly the Maori's haka, and that could also be traced back to a ritualized form of combat. And in Europe, the Greeks had formalized wrestling that started as combat training but became athletic over time. The Celts had ritualized combat forms documented by the Romans, though not terribly reliably. There's less evidence for the steppe people, but they employed common tactics across multiple generations of societies, indicates there probably was. And finally, post-Roman Empire, the Europeans had documented forms of practices to teach sword and combat work. So in short, martial arts are universal for humans. See, that wasn't so bad.
1: That is one opinion.
0: But when Americans think martial arts, we universally think about... I am a master of the Asian Shaolin art of Kung Fu. And this is solely because Americans love fucking movies. I always like Bruce Lee movies. The martial arts film goes back almost to the beginning of the movies. In 1928, a Chinese film called called The Burning of the Red Lotus Temple is the earliest known in the genre. Though the print is lost due to, you know, wars and stuff, it is reported to be 27 hours long and was released in 16 parts. A director's cut! It's safe to say that no one in Hollywood at the time was looking to China for inspiration. It would take an entire world war, the upending of the traditional world order, for Asian movies to become marketable to Hollywood. As post-war Japan began rising in Western awareness, Japan began to look into Americans for economic opportunities. Their film industry began to get noticed here in the States. In the 1950s, Japanese cinema became quite avant-garde in some circles, including influential Hollywood directors. Rashomon, Seven Samurai, and Tokyo Story, all from the golden era, of ja- golden era of Japanese cinema, are to this day considered some of the best movies of all time. But it was a little film of somewhat less artistic merit that capt- captured the common man's interests. Godzilla,
1: King of the Monsters! Alive. Surging up from the depths of the sea on a tidal wave of terror to wreak vengeance on mankind. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. It's alive. A gigantic beast. Dotting the earth, crushing
0: all before it. In a cyclonic cavalcade of electrifying horror. Raging through the streets on a rampage of total destruction. Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Though the movie that caught on over here, the Americanized version, had a hastily edited edited in Raymond Burr, who was actually Canadian, and that's what introduced the lizard to American audiences. The upshot of all this was Asian movies began to be, well, not taken more seriously, but considered more exploitable by the capitalist running the studios. But don't be mad at capitalism. Capitalism loves you. And this is where the two elements of our backstory meet in the middle and magically become relevant. As Hollywood began looking for cheap movies in the late 1960s, they discovered a thriving movie scene in Hong Kong where studios were churning out movies featuring dudes kung fu fighting. There was and is a long tradition of such movies in Hong Kong, but it was the fight choreography that made these movies special. Anyone who spent a Saturday afternoon on the couch watching an old Bruce Lee movie knows what I mean. Bruce Lee made the movies international box office gold. Quoting now from an article on premiumbeat.com, quote, In the 1970s, Hong Kong was enjoying an economic boom, and Kung Fu films began to replace the Wuxia films. Fights were choreographed more realistically. Combat in the martial arts film, and more importantly for us in the Kung Fu film, is storytelling. Training sequences, instruction, rivalries, heroism, sacrifice, and loss are all narrative tools that we don't always see in other film genres. These aren't necessarily new tools. We've been telling combat narratives for as long as we've been beating on each other. However, these tools have taken on on different uses and meanings in various martial arts contexts, and fantasy elements were discarded for grittier real-world conflicts between good and evil." Meanwhile, back here in America... Interest in martial arts had been growing quietly since the end of World War II. Schools teaching karate began opening up and references to karate began to pop up in pop culture. Be it villains in Bond movies or action heroes using karate chops to take down villains. All of it blossomed in 1972, first in a little television show. Anyone want to guess? Come on. Anyone? Yeah, they called it Kung Fu. In which notable Caucasian David Carradine played Kwai Chang Kang, an orphan American boy who was raised by Shaolin monks and taught the ways of Kung Fu. He eventually returns to America to travel the Old West as a Kung Fu cowboy. There is some question as to whether or not the idea was flat out stolen from Bruce Lee, who might have pitched it before it was given to noted Caucasian David Carradine. Allegedly. At the same time, a movie called The Five Fingers of Death.
1: The new movie sensation that's stunning the world. The martial arts masterpiece. Sights and sounds like never before. Cheer the young warrior who alone takes on the evil warlords of martial arts. See one incredible onslaught after the other. Come prepared for the thrill of a lifetime. I want you to pay a visit to the Shangwu wu School of Defense. Who do you want us to kill? Just you concentrate on the leaders. The others won't give us any trouble. See acts of incredible
0: savagery. Incredibly deadly. Unbelievably vicious. This movie took box offices like a swarm of Shaolin monks sweeping down a Shanghai street. Originally called King Boxer in Hong Kong, it came to the United States. And quoting from a New York Times review of the film in 1972, quote, The hero, Chow Chi Hao, is a promising student of the martial arts, and he enrolls in the school of Sun Hisin Pai, where he's first put to menial tasks like scrubbing floors and chopping firewood, with the sides of his bare hands, of course. But he soon proves his worth, and Sun entrusts him with The Secrets of the Iron Fist, a technique that should win him the All-China Karate Tournament. He does win despite the vile trickery of the rival karate master and the film's end sees him firm in the love of his hometown sweetheart, Sun Ying Ping, and dispatching his enemies boldly into several inches of solid brick wall by means of the Iron Fist method, unquote. To a modern viewer who grew up on the Matrix style of special effects, and make no mistakes, the uh, original Matrix was first and foremost a kung fu movie. I know kung fu. The Wachowskis openly admit this. Five Fingers of Death is hilariously bad, from its painful English dialogue dubbing over the top spe- and the over top special effects and the almost dance moves of the fighting. But in 1970s through YouTube, this was some shit ain't nobody had seen before, and people fucking loved it. From a Polygon article in 2021, quote: The audience set riveted, even during the talky parts. Fighters tore out eyes, smashed hands into bloody hamburger, and split foreheads with iron-hard fingers, sending in bright red Shaw Brothers' blood, ejaculating across the screen and pouring the graphic spurts. And after the hero stumbled off into the sunset in the final 15 seconds, bloody and scarred, with no one left to fight because they were all dead, the audience erupted into applause and then rushed the merch table in the lobby and stripped it bare. Word of mouth burned through the city. He went back to see it again and again it was the first major kung fu movie released in america and it changed the film business forever but its star wasn't bruce lee it was Li high and its title was five fingers of the death unquote the movie went on to make 10 million dollars in the u.s and canadian box office in 1972 that's 75 million dollars in today's dollars for a movie that cost nothing for the u.s studios to make a pittance for them to acquire the rights for and zero marketing it was all word of mouth and this left the hollywood moguls in rather a state like penis can only get so erect and the movie opened doors to a flood of Hong Kong kung-fu movies and finally we enter the dragon Roper Williams and Lee the deadly three penetrate the secret chambers of an evil island empire what do you know about Han he lives like a king on that island totally self sufficient a fortress without walls protected by an invincible army that needs no ordinary weapons this is enter the dragon the first martial arts film produced by a major hollywood studio bruce lee was born in america but he was a huge star in hong kong he did five feature films in hong kong but he had also worked in several american television and film projects most notably perhaps another challenge for the green hornet his aide, Cato, and their rolling arsenal, the Black Beauty. On police records, a wanted criminal. The Green Hornet is really Britt Reed, owner-publisher of the Daily Sentinel. His dual identity, known only to his secretary and to the district attorney. And now, to protect the rights and lives of decent citizens, rides the Green Hornet. I mean, Bruce wasn't the Green Hornet. He was the Asian sidekick. Bruce also had been in many, many film and television roles here in the States. Unsurprisingly, as the uh, Asian sidekick, the success of Five Fingers of Death finally saw him star in his own homegrown kung fu flick in 1973, the aforementioned Enter the Dragon. To say the film was a success is to downplay it quite a bit. It made $400 million on an $800,000 budget and made Bruce Lee a movie star. There was a The one tiny little problem. He died. Yeah, Bruce died of a brain swelling in June of 73, and Enter the Dragon didn't hit the theaters until August. But his previous martial arts movies would make millions, and they are the staple of the the Kung Fu craze of the 1970s. From a 2008 blog post on Shroud of Thought, quote, In its box office chart for June 20th, 1973, Variety shows how huge the Kung Fu craze had grown. There were no less than five Kung Fu movies in the top 50. Deep Thrust, The Hand of Death, The Big Boss, under its American title, Fist of Fury, was still on the chart, having been joined a few weeks later by another Bruce Bruce Lee movie, Fist of Fury, under the American title, The Chinese Connection. That week would see two more kung fu films join them in the top 50, Duel of the Iron Fist and Kung Fu, The Invisible Fist. And as the summer of 1973 passed, more kung fu movies would enter the top 50 of Variety's box office chart. The Chinese Boxer, known in the United States as the Hammer of God, was the number one movie for the week of June 27, 1973. Three. The Chase, then titled Shanghai Killers in the U.S., and The Fearless Fighters, would both be released in August and see similar success, unquote. The uh, film genre, which came to be called Chop socky Isn't that a little racist? I don't know. Only if you consider exploitation a little racist.
1: <gasps> I really do.
0: Yeah, fair enough. Well, the genre didn't die. It considered well, continued well into the 80s, though the actors doing all the fancy moves did become noticeably whiter and whiter. People like Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and the whitest of the white, Steven Seagal. And as the actors grew paler, the chop movies essentially merged into the action movie genre of the 80s and stayed there until the late 90s when Jackie Chan turned them into action comedies. It wouldn't be until the 2000s when higher-end martial art movies experienced a renaissance under directors like Ang Lee in Crouching Tiger, hidden dragon but these movies are not what i came to talk about today what the hell man i came to talk about a song it's a song all of you know you've heard it all your life a song so ubiquitous that the first few notes will instantly bring the rest of the song straight into your brain and have you making sort of karate chop motions without you actually intending to you all know what song i mean oh oh, 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 oh.
1: Everybody was kung fu fighting.
0: Those kids were This song was the peak of the kung fu craze, and arguably it also ended it. The song came from a very unusual place.
1: What, like the back of a Volkswagen?
0: A Jamaican born, American raised British resident by the name of Carl Douglas. And he would join with a Bangalore, India-born British resident who uh, came to fame producing a band from Japan. The producer's name was Bidu Opaya. Bidu would go on to become one of the godfathers of Eurodisco, but before that, he and Carl would record a little record together. A song that would popularize disco in the United States and would sell 11 million copies around the world a song that was never intended to be a hit. It was the B side of the single and a song that would get white people on the dance floors doing spin kicks, hopping on one foot and making chopping motions in their hands. And they called it dancing. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Quoting now from groovyhistory.com. It's been a minute since we used them. Quote, Douglas originally met with Biddu to record I Want to Give You My Everything, a song written by Biddu and Larry Weiss that was planned to be Douglas's new single. After spending two hours on the first track, they were left with only ten minutes to figure out a B-side. Douglas proposed a silly song he had written after watching a group of kids mock some karate moves with each other. They finished the song in two takes and Biddu threw in numerous huzz and ha's along with stereotypical the oriental riff in order to fill up some time. Neither the singer nor the producer were very concerned about the song's production since they assumed no one would pay attention to the B-side, unquote. When Carl and Bidu took the record to the label, they had some notes. flip it. And uh, they made Kung Fu Fighting the A-sides. Now, I could go into explaining the A-side and B-sides of records if you like, but it should only take about, I don't know, 10 minutes or so. Skip it. Another time then. It turned out to be a pretty good idea. I Want to Give My Everything is a great proto-disco R&B song. but it was never gonna move 11 million units. Going back to groovy history, quote, it took a few weeks for any action to happen as radio stations weren't playing the tune, so no one was buying it. But its catchy beat eventually caught on to dance clubs and soon the loud huss and huss were belted throughout disco parties, and people sure got down to the thumping rhythm of the karate-filled song. The song capitalized on the success of the Kung Fu craze as only the, uh, one of the only funky songs about the topic. By September of 1974, Kung Fu Fighting reached number one on the UK singles chart, making Bidu the first Asian producer to achieve, to achieve a number one hit. In December, it topped the Billboard Hot 100, and in January of 1975, it went to number one in the Billboard Soul and R&B chart. The song also went to the top of the charts in Australia, Austria, Belgium, Canada, France, Ireland, the Netherlands, New Zealand, South Africa, and West Germany, unquote. And look, the the song isn't complicated. I mean, the lyrics, after all, are, There was funky China men from funky Chinatown. They were chopping them up. They were chopping them down. It's an ancient Chinese art, and everybody knew their part. Shakespeare. It's not. The story briefly is Bill Chin and Sammy Chung take on a big boss of the Kung Fu Brawl for no apparent reason, which, if you've ever seen an old Kung Fu movie, is entirely keeping with the genre. What makes it so damn catchy is the basic beat meshed with Carl's questionably oriental's oh, ho, 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 and, of course, those Asian flute flourishes
1: <laughs>
0: that instantly burn the song into your brain. That flute riff is so stereotypical Asian that it dominated popular music and television for decades. NPR went in search of its origins back in 2014. Quote, Martin Nielsen, a web designer in Sweden, he'd been studying piano at a conservatory and had a lot of free time to devote to his hobby research, told me over the phone. He found that the melody's roots went way further back than Kung Fu fighting, at least as far as the 19th century. One of the things Nielsen was trying to discover is where the melody was ever a reference to a real Asian tune or if it was purely a Western invention. It doesn't come from Chinese folk music, really, Nilsson says. It's just a caricature of how Westerners think Chinese music would sound. While digging through American sheet music archives, Nilsson reached the point where the line between references to the riff and very similar ones got blurry. So he dubbed the similar riffs the Far East Proto Cliché based on specific musical characteristics. The definition, any melody with a particular rhythmic pattern whose first four tones are identical that usually uses a, plat- a pentatonic scale, unquote. The whole story is actually really fascinating, and it's worth a read, and it is, of course, linked in the show notes. The song Kung Fu Fighting burned through the pop culture here in the States hot and fast. I remember it being on the radio when I was five and six, and I remember doing karate moves to the song as well. The dance had specific moves, which obviously you cannot see on a podcast. Again, I have linked a video in the show notes, but I will do my best to describe them to you as the song opens the dancers would hold a kata pose a leg spread arms stretched forward in a fist like they were paused in mid punch as the beat kicked the dancers would then kick one leg while drawing the extended arm back and then move into some standard disco move hip swivels twirls and all the while interspersing kicks and punches and giving out a who or a ha as though once again they were in the midst of a Kung Fu brawl. That sounds dangerous. Oh, it totally was. I mean, most of the people who were doing this were white people drunk as shit or buzzed on or buzzed like a band song cocaine. So, you know, people were struck with blows and kicks on the dance floor and that would lead to fights, which would lead to bouncers using real Kung Fu to break up said fights or more realistically, Big Patty School of Boston martial arts. The song was quickly replaced on the dance floor by newer disco hits, and the disco became marginally safer for the dancers. Carl Douglas did try to recapture this kung fu vibe with his follow-up song, Dance the Kung Fu. Which never even made it close to the top 40 because by that time the Kung Fu craze was subsiding for the next big thing in American culture. As I said, it never went away, but it became far more niche than it was when Bruce Lee and his assorted rip-offs were dominating the silver screens. America had already moved on to Big Rigs and CB radios. See episode number 340, Wall to Wall Entry, Top Tall, for more information. That's a plug. Which of course brings us to the final question of the episode. Was the uh song Kung Fu Fighting well, was it uh Is that racist? Yes. Well, Carl Douglas didn't think so. He told the Daily Mail in 2011 after a pub band was arrested in the UK when a Chinese couple complained about them singing the song, quote, Yesterday, the song's writer and original performer Carl Douglas described the decision to arrest Mr. Ledger as the political correctness gone mad because the song was not racist. The arrest is a little unbelievable because there's no racism in the song. Douglas, who is now 68, said, It's very strange indeed. I'm proud of the song. Everyone told me that the fusion of East and West couldn't work. And I said, no, it can't. I have cousins that are Chinese in Jamaica. So I knew it could work. Ah, yes, everyone has a Chinese cousin in Jamaica, Carl. Everyone. Why would I sing a song that could be interpreted as racist? He said he has met with the thousands of Chinese fans around the world and had been asked to perform it at the Olympics in Beijing, unquote. I should also point out, not that I need to, but Carl is not Asian. But between you and me and the KJ, you probably shouldn't sing it on the karaoke stage these days. I mean, it is filled with some pretty over-the-top racial stereotypes. And if someone wrote a song, everyone was Jamaican fighting, and then performed it with a, <laughs> with a wig that was nothing but dreadlocks and filled it full of yaw Carl would probably say, Yeah, that's
1: racist. Oh,
0: that is racist. And I'm not saying you can't play the song at your wedding, but maybe you should check the guest list before you do. And I'm not saying you can't listen to the song and do the little karate moves. Just maybe don't listen to it over speaker in the park. And also, maybe keep it off the playlist at the office Christmas party. The world where this song was originally released doesn't exist anymore, and that's actually a good thing. I know a lot of my fellow male Americans get really upset that they can't say and do the things they used to say and do when we were kids, and I I understand. I like kung fu fighting. It's a hell of a catchy tune. Every time I hear it, I go back to a time when it was played at bars and karaoke, and it was a karaoke staple because I have belted it out on more than one occasion. It was totally fun, and it's easy to say. Well, it was the 70s. <laughs> so lighten up. But even in the 70s, dude, it wasn't cool. It lumped an entire category of people into one ill-defined group that had nothing to do with their culture. Their language or their heritage. It defined them all as a character, right along with being bad drivers, not being able to pronounce their R's, and having squinty eyes, which, if you add in being good at math, you have what a significant subset of white Americans think today. Carl Douglas wasn't being intentionally racist, and you weren't either for grooving along with the song, but you were, and Carl was taken part of a structure of racism that persists and in some ways has even grown. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you should run out and purchase a MAGA hat. It just means you should be aware that people are much more than, than hack Hollywood stereotypes. Way more white people practice martial arts in the United States than people of Asian ancestry, even if you factor it in by population per capita. And there are Asians who are very bad at math and their parents, are very disappointed for that. And Carl, man, I totally get it. I get it, man. You, You didn't think you wrote a racist song. I get it. So I tell you what. We white people made that movie about the Jamaican bobsled team and you made a song about kung fu fighting. Let's just call it even and we'll let it go with that. That is it for the show this week. This was intended to be a short light show about nothing more than just the one song. but like, like, so many times, shit just got out of control. This business will get out of control. It'll get out of control and we'll be lucky to live through. And I found myself talking about martial arts and chop-socky movies. Sorry about that. Speaking of being sorry, you will be sorry if you don't rate and review this show. Suggest it to your friends, share it on your social media, or get your mom into it because you were co-hosting a podcast, a different podcast, with me. Hi, Judy. If you like what you hear, kick us a dollar at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Now, do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, Jeremy will be forced to show us his skill at the dojo again, and Gavin's ribs hasn't healed from the last time. And so for me, Dave, I podcast with expert timing, Bledsoe, producer, he is a little bit frightening, Gavin, and all the fictional Asian Americans practicing European martial arts on the show. We want to say, I don't know, the acoustic version just somehow sounds a little less racist. And we'll see you all next week. Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website whatthehellpodcast.com or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast or on Facebook as whatthehellpodcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this so I take a small bow. Uh, that's
1: still yeah. still kind of crazy.